In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There was a rich man who had a manager. His position was probably much like Joseph under Pharaoh in Egypt. He had control over nearly every aspect of the rich man's affairs. Now, given that this man, as we will soon learn, is such a scoundrel, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that he maybe greased a few palms or offered significant favors to get into his current position. Maybe he stabbed some people in the back, at least metaphorically. It's a truth that we often see in the scriptures and that we know by experience. When someone bends the rules in one area of life, he probably bends them in another. Now, we aren't told his specific transgressions, only that he was wasting the rich man's possessions. So we can guess what that might have looked like, maybe skimming off the top, fudging a number here or there, recording payments smaller than what he was actually given. We know that because he was selfish, he sets everything in order to his own personal advantage. He is a scoundrel, and yet he is also smart. He's in the rich man's good graces, and he's made it to the top of his game. Now, this manager doesn't care about himself. Now, doesn't care about the manager doesn't care about the rich man. Sorry, I, even even with the simple text, sometimes I get mixed up with who's who. Right, but the the manager doesn't care about the rich man. The manager only cares. For himself. And as the rich man soon learns, his manager is a crook. He isn't managing according to his master's wishes, and he will soon be fired. He is to hand over the record of his management. His service is over, but he's not immediately rushed out. Evidently, his position was important enough that he would need to set things in order before his replacement could take over. Or maybe the the rich man is oddly generous for some reason. Now, the future for the manager is certain. He will be removed from his position. But because he knows exactly what's coming, he can plan for it. In fact, not only does he know that he will soon be fired, he also knows that his boss is an honorable man, and he will use these two things to his own advantage. Over the next couple of verses, we get to listen in to his thoughts. What shall I do? Oh, what shall I do? I'm losing my job. My wife's going to kill me. I simply can't tell her this news. Well, I know what I'm not going to do. I've never really worked with my hands a day in my life. I can't really start that now. It's not like this professional banker can go and become a mechanic. I don't even know one end of the screwdriver from the other. Nor am I going to go on welfare. I'm just I'm too proud for that. What to do, what to do. Oh, I've got it. This will work. I know it. I know I don't have the authority to change the books anymore. 
And my boss knows I don't have the authority. My boss's contractors, they're still in the dark. I'll use my clout and my appearance of authority to get them to come in and, and meet with me. But I'll do it with them privately so none of them figures out what's happening. Oh, come in, come in, quickly now. Okay, uh, what do you owe? A hundred measures of oil. I see, I see. Here, take your bill. Um, sit down quickly and, and write, make that 50. Put it in your own handwriting, and it'll be clear that you know that this is the arrangement. All right, well, thanks for coming in. I must be going. Uh, say hi to your wife. Bye. All right, uh, send in the next guy. All right, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat? Got it. You take your bill, make it 80. And so with each of his master's debtors, he forgives them about 18 months worth of debt. And he did it in such a way the rich man would have a hard time changing the deal. Now it doesn't take too long until the rich man knows what's going on. And he commends his former manager you really know what you want and how to get it. From day one of working with me, you were mo you've been more dishonest than I could have imagined. You've outsmarted me, and even if you didn't have your next gig lined up, you're going to land on your feet. When it came to being a faithful steward of the rich man's things, the manager was a complete and utter failure. And yet he is commended by the rich man because he managed to outsmart his boss. He's commended for using his ingenuity to get what he wanted. And so if we, if we were to take a look at this guy's life, to see the way that he spent his time, it would be perfectly evident that he knew what he wanted. Anyone who could see his actions would also know his goal. No matter what happens, this guy is going to come out on top because he's going to do whatever will work in his own favor. Now, I'm sure he probably loved his position, but he did so because he knew that he could use his position to provide for himself what he loved more money and possessions and provision for himself. He was always thinking and, and plotting. He knew what his boss said about the future and he, he trusted his boss's word. He would be fired. The future happened as the manager believed according to the rich man's word. He was fired. And yet, those words were barely out of his boss's mouth before the steward had a new plan in place. For him, this job, this job loss would be a mere minor setback. Now, Jesus tells us that this unjust steward, or this unrighteous manager, is like the sons of this world. A son of this world lives in this world, derives all pleasure and joy from this world and seeks the things of this world to sustain himself in this world. 
He is completely and utterly focused on the ways of the world. He knows how the world works and how to get the most benefit for himself from that order. He also knows how his boss thinks. He knows how to get into others' good graces. He knows how to avoid getting caught. He doesn't go to church or respect authority. He lies, he cheats, he steals, he covets. And every single one of his actions is motivated by the fear of losing what he had already gained. There was no fear of God in his heart. He was completely and utterly self-absorbed. If we were to judge him according to the Ten Commandments, he'd get a big, fat zero. And yet, at the end of this, Jesus says that this man is commendable. Now, it's almost universally asserted that this is a hard text. But what is it about this text that makes it so hard? Is it hard because the words are confusing? Well, Jesus doesn't really use big, complicated words. He's not telling a story with tons of characters, and even though I sometimes get them mixed up, it's, it's a pretty simple parable. Jesus even gives us a summary of it at the end. Now, yeah, I think we can all agree that it's strange that the scoundrel gets the compliment, but we can kind of see what that's like. Like, maybe like complimenting an opponent who beat you with his ingenuity or his skill. Like, even, even if he beat me, I'm still kind of impressed by him. So that's not really the trouble for us either. And there are other details in the text that could occupy our minds. Why, for example, did the master let the steward keep cooking the books if his service was coming to an end? Why, when he called in the the debtors, did he ask them what they owed? But focusing only on the things that are unknown or seemingly confusing really just distracts us from the main point. I think the trouble comes for us when we start to think about what this text actually means. In consideration of, of reading God's word and, and seeing that God's word is clear, we talked last week about this sinful tendency that we have to read the clear, simple words of the Bible and to say, well, I just can't understand that. And we can see how others do this with like, Baptists and baptism who say, like, oh, well, baptism is, is your first act of obedience. And to say, well, what does the Bible say? It says baptism now saves you. And so we come to a text like this, and, and we have a tendency to say it's too confusing. But I think what makes this text hard isn't the content, isn't that it's too hard to to understand or to make out what Jesus is saying. It's that Jesus is teaching about priorities and about what your priorities mean for the structure of your whole life. It's not just about what seems important on 
Sunday morning or during your daily devotions. It's about what's important every hour of every day. And so we don't like the kind of Jesus who speaks to us in this way. A Jesus who speaks this way seems to be indicating that he thinks he has, I don't know, some kind of authority over us. And so if Jesus wants us to think about priorities, well, it means decisions about marriage and family and school and career and health and leisure and entertainment and all the ways that we spend our time. Jesus is preaching to us about about zeal and against apathy. Now, it's probably not hard to look at this text and see how this wasteful manager is actually better than we are. He knows what his goal is, and he pursues it wholeheartedly. And yet, you can also look at this rich, at, at this manager, and you can say, oh, his desire is for a crown that isn't going to last. His friends are just bought with money. All the things that he has are things that will, sto- that will spoil. And so the manager can only find a place to lay his head as long as he continues to work shrewdly. But when he can no longer work this way, or when his mind fails him, he will be left with nothing. All that he has in this life will wear out and fade and die. And when it comes to the end of his life, none of his treasures or his prestige will go with him. He will die in his sins. In the final accounting of things, his shrewdness in this life won't matter a bit. Now, maybe this manager in his shrewdness was shrewd enough to know that his misdeeds would eventually catch up with him. But maybe he just doesn't care. And yet, we can see that his shrewdness is only motivated by fear, that he's afraid of what he's going to lose. Now, we're we're told, and, and experience tells us, too, that fear is the strongest possible motivator. Politicians use it to scare you away from the other guy. If if one candidate can paint a convincing picture of how terrible life will be if that other guy wins, well, then you've been motivated by fear. News anchors know that fear sells. And how much of our conversation then also gets dominated by fear. So what are you afraid of? What does your life say that you fear most of all? What fears occupy your thoughts? What things do you spend your money on to assuage those fears? Are you motivated by fear? Maybe you find comfort in escaping from your fears. How much time do each of us sit in front of a screen hoping to be entertained? Or do we look for relief in a bottle or in a plate of comfort food? 
Or maybe our feelings toward this fear are just dead. And you look for feeling wherever you might be able to find it, even if those things might be harmful to you. Are you apathetic to the things of God? You see, just as it was for that steward, the way you spend your time and the way you use what you have been given diagnoses your God. And so what do you fear? What do you love? What do you trust? What do you care about most? So what do you find truly important? Or if if someone were to analyze your life, what would his assessment be? What would your interests and stewardship betray about you? Dear saints, Jesus is provoking us with his word today. Does Jesus not give us a better goal, a more important race? Is the goal of life in this world not to make it to that finish line? The unrighteous manager had one goal. He was single-minded. Everything at his disposal is brought to bear. He uses his intelligence, his position, his access to the boss man's money, just so he can have a couch to sleep on tonight. And so Jesus is also provoking us. Are you going to be outdone by the unbelievers? Now, you know that this isn't just a parable. Jesus could have told the same thing about any number of political causes today. They know their goal. They seek it with money, with legislation, with influence, with everything they possibly can. Jesus is right. It's amazing how often that surprises us, isn't it? That Jesus would be right. The sons of this world are far better at knowing what they want and chasing after it wholeheartedly. But we Christians sit around with the hope that, well, someone will do something eventually. So why does it seem that Christians seem to want to get into heaven with as little commitment as possible? We put everything in terms of minimums. Well, what's the least number of times I need to come to church? What's the least I need to believe in order to commune? Or how many of us look at that line where where sin begins and we want to creep right up to the edge? We want to get as close as we can to that supposed pleasure of sin. Truth is, looking at my own heart, I find being a son of this world is a lot more fun and a lot more captivating than being a son of light. I know that I have eternal bliss and joy with my Savior who loves me dearly, and yet I find life in this world more rewarding and more worthwhile and more important. And all the things in this life are things that are going to end. 
the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh want us to invest everything into life in this world. Now, I'm not saying with this that that we should never watch TV or relax with a good cup of an expensive Lutheran beverage. God has given us good things for our enjoyment. But when we do these things, do we do them as Christians? So hear what Jesus says at the end of this parable. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal homes. Do you hear the promise that Jesus gives you there? You have an eternal home. You're not a son of this world. You're not simply trying to get the next place to stay for the night. You are a son of light, a son of the true light. You are a member of his house by adoption. Your holy baptism into Christ. You have a home with him. So that means that this world isn't your home. It means that this land where shrewdness rules the day isn't exactly natural to you. Worldly shrewdness is not your native language. So I could just tell you to be more shrewd, but that's not really helpful. And so we should remember what it was that made the manager so shrewd. He was shrewd because he knew the future, or at least he knew his boss's word about the future. And he believed his boss's word. For that steward, he only stayed employed if he was a good steward. He had to earn his place in the house so that when it became evident that this guy was a crook, well, then he's fired. But you and I, we have a much better word from a much better and much richer rich man. You know what God promises about the future. And he doesn't lie. God has been utterly generous to you in sending his only begotten son to take away your sin. In him, your future is utterly and completely secure. And it belongs to you entirely by grace. Your place in God's kingdom is not gained by fear. It is a gift. You are free. You see, this text is a text for Christians, for those who have been found by their ever-generous Father in heaven. It follows right after the parables of the lost things in chapter 15. And so all of us who have been found by Jesus are now brought into rejoicing that the lost have been found. And so now Jesus sets about teaching what life is like for a son of light. Because your future is not only known, your future is secure. Your future is a good future. The unrighteous steward had an urgency to his work because he was motivated by fear. He knew that if he didn't get his backside in gear, 
he would be in big trouble. But the motivation for your urgency is entirely different. You don't need to scurry around like that man in order to gain a place for yourself. Your destination is already secure in Christ. Jesus and his word aren't going to leave you behind. And so Jesus says the sons of light should look at what they know about the future and make their judgments and decisions based on that. The sons of light know that they deserved death and hell, but Jesus by his blood has saved them from all of that. The sons of light know that this world isn't going to last forever, that their inheritance is with God in Christ, that their neighbors need love and service, and most of all, that their neighbors also need to hear this gospel of salvation. So just as it was for the son of this world, for that shrewd manager, so also the actions of the sons of light betray their true goal. They boldly confess their sins, trusting in Christ's mercy and forgiveness. You see, this precious gift that you have received is also yours to be shared. It doesn't really cost you anything to tell someone else about your Lord's gifts or to invite them to God's house. You do this because you also want them to know the greatest love of God in Christ that he has bestowed on you. And so one of the ways that this happens, Jesus says, is by unrighteous mammon. Now, mammon is kind of a funny word, but it's just all the earthly stuff that you have. And, and we probably especially think of money. Now, Jesus calls it unrighteous because it's not as though such things are inherently righteous. It's not as though you can have, you know, you can pull out your wallet and preach the gospel to a dollar bill and it will be converted and it will now love Jesus. Money can be used for, for good or evil. So also tools or, or the screens that you carry around in your pocket. But Jesus is making it clear that mammon doesn't last. You know that mammon won't go to heaven with you. So Jesus says, when it fails, and not, well, if it happens to fail at some point along the way. He says, your mammon will fail you. It is a promise. You brought nothing into this world, and you can take nothing out of it. The kingdom of heaven to which you belong, that will never fall. It cannot be bought with money, for its cost was far greater than all the treasure in the world. The kingdom was purchased and won for you, not with gold or silver, but with your Lord's holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Even more than that, if you were to compare the value of one drop of Christ's blood to all the wealth of the world piled up in heaps around you. It cannot compare to the perfect righteousness that you have in Christ. And all this is handed over to you by grace. It is a free gift. Now that's not, of course, to say that money or, or mammon are without use. Compared to the heavenly riches, these things are 
worth virtually nothing. But in this world, you can accomplish much with a little money. And so God uses your money for police and fire departments who defend you from danger. He uses money to put food on your table and a roof over your head. He also uses things like that to support the preaching of the gospel. It's kind of strange, isn't it? God doesn't need money to give anyone the gospel. And yet he uses money to support missionaries and the mission of his church. And if that weren't strange enough, God doesn't give the money the church needs directly into our checking account. He puts it in the wallet of sinners. Now, looking at this text, it's also a text that doesn't give you all the answers. Jesus doesn't tell you exactly how to spend your resources. And nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told how much to give, only that it should be from the heart. Your Lord has given you great wealth and also immense discretion in how you use that wealth. So yes, use it to provide food for yourself and a roof over your head. Use it to support your family with nourishment and shelter. Use it for pleasure, for the good things in this life. But do not neglect the one thing that is most important. The evil steward was entrusted with riches to do the rich man's bidding. Just so you know how God thinks. You know that he was generous toward you in giving you his gospel. In fact, he used not only his own generosity, but someone else's generosity to bring the gospel to you. So you also desire to do as God does. You desire to be like your Lord in his generosity. You know that today Jesus is preaching against your apathy. The solution to your apathy is to look to Christ. Look to the generosity of your God and let his generosity push you to be generous like him. Now, maybe that wicked steward wasn't looking to heaven. Maybe he only had hope for here and now. Maybe he thought that he could make this place heaven on earth. Maybe he thought that his only hope of salvation was to make his best life now. But you, dear saints, you don't have to use your money or possessions and stuff to earn a place for you in heaven. Nor do you need to use them to create heaven on earth for yourself. God gives you all that in Christ. He brings heaven to earth in this place for you this very day. For these are the treasures beyond measure. Forgiveness of sins and life and salvation. The name of God, the body and blood of Jesus. All these are given out to you for free. You already have ultimate riches. You already have freedom in Christ. So what will you do with your freedom? Maybe you'll look to Matthew 25 and the ways Jesus describes supporting his church. Maybe you can think of ways to continue and expand the proclamation of the gospel in your home, in your church, in your community, and to the ends of the earth. But Jesus doesn't tell you how. You're free. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. The peace of God keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord.